The scripture reading today is from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. This is God's Word. You may be seated. I hope you don't feel guilty if you didn't feel warm fuzzies after that particular text was read. It's a a dark text, and uh, Russ read a a portion of it. And uh, we we are grateful for all of God's words, and especially for the ones that that remind us, as as, uh, John Skipworth was talking about in class this morning, of, of, of what our origins are. And uh, one of the great writers of the, uh, of the 20th century, religious writers of the 20th century, a fellow by the name of Frederick Buechner, uh, in writing a book on, on the, the gospel, said that uh, to, to fully understand the gospel and to fully uh, comprehend and embrace and appreciate the gospel, you have to realize that the gospel is bad news before it's good news. And that's uh, what Paul is doing in the text this morning. And before we get into it, we're going to ask God to, to, to bless us and to open our minds and hearts to, to this passage out of Romans that is, that is incredibly deep and incredibly enlightening to us about the human dilemma. And uh, that's, that's do that now. And if you haven't done so already, keep your Bibles open to Romans chapter 1. And inside of the announcement sheet, there is a, a sheet that you can use to follow along with this message as, as we go through this text. But let's begin with prayer. Let's bow our heads and join our hearts. Father, there are, are some passages that as soon as we taste them, as soon as we drink them in, the greatness and the profoundness of the nature of the words that are inspired by You, bless us. And then there are passages, Father, that that call us to be minors. That call us to roll up our sleeves, to to bend our elbows, and and exert energy in in trying, Father, to to, to capture the vastness and the depth of of a message, an infinite message in in some ways, Father, that are are placed in in a, a finite number of words. And that's the task that we find ourselves with this morning, Father, as we, 
We seek not just to be true to understanding, but in so doing, Father, to be true to You as Your disciples. So give us, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus, eyes that see and ears that hear so that we can turn toward You. Father, bless us in this way. We pray it with all our heart in the name of Jesus and all the church said. 1991 doesn't seem so far ago, but uh, actually about 20, 24, 25 years ago, there was a, a movie that came out in 91 called Grand Canyon. It had an immigration attorney in the opening scene. Uh, it was played by Kevin Klein. He breaks out of a traffic jam in L.A. and he attempts to bypass it the way that we do here in San Antonio, except that he gets lost and he ends up in a dark and dangerous part of the city. He doesn't know where he is. And then as if on cue, his expensive car stalls and he can't get it going. Well, he's able to call a tow truck, but before he gets there, a group of five young thugs come up and are going to work him over. And it's right then, at the, as this tension is building at the very beginning of this movie, in the beginning minutes of the movie, that the tow truck driver shows up. And he starts to hook up that, that stalled car as if nothing else is going on around him. Well, that stops all of the action between the owner of the car and the gang members. And they begin to protest that this truck driver, is, or this tow truck driver, is, 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 is getting in on their turf. And who does he think he is? Well, the driver is played by Danny Glover, and he takes the leader aside and he says, man, the world ain't supposed to be like this. Maybe you don't know that, but this ain't the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without asking you if I can. And that dude over there is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything supposed to be different than what it is here. End of quote. What he's saying is something very profound. In, in other words, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Now there are times when the world is such a deep source of beauty and joy. Sunsets, face of your granddaughter or grandson, a delicious meal, the ocean and the beach, the sounds of birds in the morning. There are times when the world is such a deep source of beauty and joy, and then there are times when it seems like the world we live in has been vandalized. People who are made in the image of God have been defaced. Communities are torpedoed. And it seems like the world at times, and, and sometimes for extended days and weeks, it seems like the world is being slowly dismantled. And then the truth dawns on us that human beings are the vandals. You know, one of the, the really telling features of the text that Russ just read for us is what it does not say. Have you thought about that? It did not say that Satan is to blame. Satan is not even mentioned. 
Now that does not absolve Satan as the evil one who has set himself against God. Don't think that Satan is absolved. Paul's point is that human beings are both perpetrators of crimes and victims. And Paul's emphasis in this text is on human accountability for the way that the things are in the world as we live in it. And there are three things in this text that, uh, that is actually going to extend to verse 32. In this text, there are three things why the world is not the way it's supposed to be. It's the reason for the wrath of God, the reality of idols, and the resulting darkness. Now in it, Paul is going to begin explaining the situation. And he begins by, by stating that there is a reason for the wrath of God. The text introduces... The human dilemma. In verse 19, he says, God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without what? Excuse. According to Paul, each and every human being possesses to some degree a knowledge of God. Two aspects of the invisible have become visible, clearly seen, to use Paul's words, from that which has been made by God. And he doesn't say that it's everything there is to know about God or all the things that you can know about God, but two very important things. Eternal power, divine nature. Divine nature, eternal power. In other words, every human being knows this, that someone or something made all of this and it wasn't someone or something like me. And if that someone or something made, key word, if that someone or something made all of this, including me, then I'm obligated. If I truly am a creature and have been made by a Creator, then I am obligated to the One who made me the way that children are obligated to the parents who made them. Bound to this God. In other words, I owe Him everything. I owe everything to Him. And that creates the dilemma. Now, the Greeks had a very interesting way of describing a dilemma. They, they talked about it as a bull. Picture, and it's up here on the screen, picture for a moment uh, a, a longhorn with these big mighty horns. The dilemma was pictured or described as trying to get around that angry bull who didn't want you to get by him. If you go to the right, then you get the horn on the right. If you go and try to run around the left very quickly, then you get the horn on the left side. You get the horn on the right, you get the horn on the left. What are you supposed to do? That was their description of a dilemma. So in what Paul has written about the human dilemma in the beginning verses of this text, how is this knowledge of God a dilemma for human beings? Well, on the one side, you can accept God fully. He is my Creator. He is the sovereign, eternal God. I accept Him fully, but in accepting Him fully, that means you are no longer in charge of your life. He is. If you accept Him fully, that He is God, that He is there, that He knows you, and that He is all-powerful in the supreme value of the universe, then that means that you are not free to do as, as you wish. You're no longer in charge of your life. He is. Or if you choose the other side, 
You can reject God and say, you know, I don't really believe that there is this, this being. And accept the consequences of living away from your Creator. Now that's the dilemma. And the choices that we have made as human beings are seen in verse 18. The wrath of God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who do what, church? Suppress. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, all the words in God's Bible are important and all the words in in Romans chapter 1 are incredibly important. All these words are important, but I want you to circle the words godlessness and suppress. Godlessness, when we, when we read it in our, with our Western minds and our, our modern minds, godlessness makes us think immediately of atheism. But here's the thing. Atheism, when this was being written, was not a big deal. Atheism was not a big deal when Paul wrote this letter. It, it's not, it was not rampant like it is today. In Paul's world, it was monotheistic or polytheistic, but basically everybody thought that there was a God. Nobody seriously considered the fact that the world had been made without a God. And so for Paul, uh, in fact, you know, when you think about atheism, atheism, atheism as we know it is really a much more modern phenomenon. Now, when Paul says with the word godlessness, what what Paul is saying with that word godlessness has to do more with impiety or disrespect to the God of heaven who has made himself known. That's what it means to be godless, according to Paul. Why is, think, think about your own experiences in life, why is disrespect such a hard thing to, to experience and, and, and to swallow? When you, see, when you see a young child that is disrespecting an adult and, and, and primarily the parent, I mean, what, what is that child saying in essence? Someone is saying to another human being, I don't see your worth. I don't see you. And, and when I don't see you, I don't see your worth. I don't need you. You don't matter. You are not going to control me. And then at the human level, when you blend in those human emotions, then, as you know, it can become an incredibly violent scenario. Suppress, the other word. Suppress means that people are stuffing down, holding back, holding down, standing on top of the lid of the knowledge of God, repressing the truth of the one Creator God. Now, ironically, you can't suppress something unless you what? You have it. That's why Paul uses that word suppress. They have it. And yet they hold it back. They hold it down. They stand on the lid. You can't suppress something unless you have it. And when you think back, this is what exactly has happened in the Garden of Eden at the very beginning of the the beginning chapters of, of Genesis. The original human beings have not just a knowledge of God, but they have the experience of God. Can you imagine? I mean, just imagine for a moment what it would be like if you could walk through McAllister Park with God. Not just the knowledge that He's there beside you, but the experience of it. 
And those original human beings suppressed what they knew to be true. And they made themselves godless, that is, without God, less God, without God, in order to make themselves God. And that has been the sin ever since. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. Which brings us to the second point, the reality of idols. One of the interesting things about the Bible, I've I've talked about this before, is that the Bible never commands worship in general. The Bible doesn't just say, worship. I command you to worship. The Bible recognizes that part of being a human being is to worship. We were created to recognize God and to worship God. The Bible assumes that human beings will worship, will worship something. And that's why the Bible says, let it be God. Jesus, during the wilderness temptations, told Satan in Matthew chapter 4, and he's quoting Scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Satan says, I want you to worship me. I want you to bow down to me. I want you to exalt me. Bow down before me. I give you all of this stuff, but bow down. And Jesus says, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. So what happens when a human being who is built to worship chooses not to glorify God, nor to give Him thanks, He will choose something else to worship. Verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became what? Futile. And their foolish hearts were, say it, darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being. Not just, he doesn't say just a human being. He says what? A mortal human being. And birds and animals and reptiles. Drop down to verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. What Paul is saying is that human beings do basically two things. They suppress and they substitute. They substitute and suppress. They suppress the knowledge of God, which leads to substituting an idol for God. And that's the idol that we dedicate our best passions and best energies and and talents to. One of the commentators uh, on Romans, Octomeyer, says, Rejecting the God who is the Father of Jesus Christ as our Lord does not remove us from all the Lords. All it does is remove us from the benevolent Lordship of God. Let me say that again. All it does is remove us from the benevolent Lordship of God and place us under the tyrannical Lordship of something completely unworthy of our submission to it. Such lordships are incapable of exercising their lordship in any but the most destructive way. Sin, when it comes to idolatry, is not just missing the target. I mean, that's, that's the definition of uh, the most popular word that, that's found in the Bible for sin. It's missing the target. You're aiming at something. It falls short. It goes above. It goes around. You miss the target. Idolatry is not just missing the target, but it's choosing the wrong target. Idolatry is choosing a, uh, uh, as a creature 
to not recognize the Creator and attempting to reconstruct the world in the opposite direction of God. That's what we do when we allow idols to come into our hearts. Constructing a world where money or sex or power, beautiful bodies or knowledge, you fill in the blank, is the core value, and that is disastrous. Now, let's try to get our mind around the perverseness of idolatry. Think of, of, of pollution. Pollution is is basically bringing together those things that should be kept apart. To pollute water is to add those things to the water that in the end make it ugly and make it toxic. I mean, who can find enjoyment at a polluted beach? It's ruined. Think of a marriage that is polluted by a third party in the act of adultery. That marriage has been corrupted by the addition of another, of a third party. It's been corrupted by the addition of another, which leads to the possibility of division, addition and division, addition and division in the same act, if that marriage splits and is destroyed by that adultery. You know, my dad used to tell a really funny story about his older brother, Joel, who was as wild as a March hare. In, in 53 years of life, I've, I've seen a lot of this, that in a family of boys, there's always a crazy one. Not afraid of anything, sort of um, uh, a death wish, uh, sort of. But they, they grew up and roamed the, the woods of East Texas, out in the middle of nowhere. And, and you know, 100 years ago. One day, uh, when they were, they were growing up and had been wandering through the woods, uh, they came back and they were just covered with mud and, and, and sweat and, and, and dirt from being out in the woods all day. And my grandmother t- made them take their clothes off on the front porch because out in the middle of the country, you weren't trying to impress anybody and that was the best place to keep the washing machine. It was out there on the front porch. So she made all of those, those dudes uh, take their overalls off and their T-shirts off and go in the house and get cleaned up. And as she was checking the pocket, she found a handful of baby copperheads in my Uncle Joel's front pocket when he was about six years old. And there has been a, 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 a very natural dislike of copperheads in the DNA of Aptures ever since. But the point is, is that idols are not neutral, friends. Idols are not neutral. Idols are not neutral. They're dangerous like baby copperheads in your front pocket. They're not neutral. They will corrupt you and they will add misery to your life and divide your relationships. All over the Bible, the Bible speaks about how idols corrupt and deface people made in the image of God. Psalm 135, beginning in verse 15, the idols of the nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is their breath in their mouths. Those who make them will be like them. The human dilemma leads to the human condition. Because we have chosen wrongly into the limit, it leads to the human condition. 
Idols are dead and it leads us to the same kind of life. We, are, we have left God. We have suppressed the knowledge of God. And as Patrick McCormick has written, we have converted ourselves unto death. And that's the resulting darkness. Three times in this text, Paul writes that God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. Augustine said that what's happening here is that sin becomes the punishment of sin. Sin becomes the punishment, the consequence for sin. C.S. Lewis, in, in one, of his, one of my favorite books of his, The Great Divorce, writes, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say, to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And so Paul writes, therefore, God gave them over in the simple desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Does that not sound sadly like the opposite world of the one that we read about God creating in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2? The human dilemma to recognize and to worship God or not. And in choosing not to do so, to worship God who is benevolent and loving and our Creator and, 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 and created us not to diminish and, and, and not to grow weak, but to, but to get larger and bigger and stronger and stronger and more vibrant But instead, we have, we have dedicated our best energies to idols. And have reaped a whirlwind. Not the most optimistic passage in the Bible just yet. But remember what Beekner says. Beekner says that before the Gospel can be truly good news, you have to know the bad news. 
And this is not the most optimistic passage in the Bible when it comes to human beings. Paul is not going to get, quite frankly, optimistic for a bit still. He needs to address how human beings are going to try to respond to the human dilemma once, once they... You know, one of the, 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 the really uh, incredible things about human beings is how creatively evil we can be when it comes to God. That once we recognize that God has to be God, then we're going to allow God to be God on our terms. We're either going to insist on our own morality that we're good, or we're going to say that we have a knowledge of God and we actually have the law of God. And that is what is in the end going to save us. Paul will say no. You know, some of the saddest images that we'll ever see on a television are those images where you see buildings and homes and neighborhoods on fire. Images of of buildings that are being bombed. Bad scene. Hyper-tragic. People needing help. People bringing more misery on top of the misery that they're already experiencing. And in all of those scenes, those dark scenes of smoke and fire and and chaos and hyper-tragedy and suffering and anxiety, there are always people running from. People running from it. Screaming and running from it. But then there's also another scene. Heroic. First responders heading in. First responders heading in. Heading to the fray. Heading to the suffering. Heading into headfirst with everything that they have. Heading into the fire and into the damage and into the suffering and into the tragedy. And that's what Christ has done. Christ is in a place of perfect harmony and of love and of peace and beauty. The songs of heaven are perfect. No tears. Not a single tear of sorrow in heaven. Only tears of joy. The greatness of beauty. Of God's majestic holiness. And Christ leaves that to run into a world that's not the way it's supposed to be. And that's where hope is born. Even in the middle of the darkness that the Christ has run into the fray, that He has run into the crisis. And that's where hope is born. It's light at the end of the tunnel. It's it's the dawning of a new day. It is a hand that reaches through the darkness and in the smoke says, let me take hold of you and pull you out. And that's what Christ did even with the, the, the ending breaths of His life. As they're nailing him to the cross. He says, Forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That's what God is offering to you today. I don't know what your life is like. 
And it's, it, it, it's not that it doesn't matter or that it's important. But the more important thing is that you see the hand that's reaching down to your soul, to your heart, to you. And saying, there can be hope and there can be beauty and there can be life and there can be significance and purpose and all of these things in your life. Let me take hold of you. And that's the offer this morning. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. And these men are eager to talk to you about how you can respond to God's, through Jesus, offer of hope to bring you out of the tragedy, out of the crisis, out of the darkness. And to plant your feet, not just on a rock, but in light all around. There may be some other ways that we can minister to you, but the shepherds are going to be down here at the front. If there are ways that we can minister to you this morning, come down and talk to them as we stand and praise God together. Time is filled with swift transition. Not of earth unmoved can say.